Okay, Scott for Mordechai for the introduction, and I appreciate uh, in absentia the uh, the Rav Masa uh, to the Rav on the uh, the Brits of his, uh, his grandson. Uh, his uh, presence is, is 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 missed, but Baruch uh, Hashem for uh, for symptoms. Um, so what I want to do with you is discuss uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit just in terms of the time that we have, but there's a lot to discuss in terms of really getting what I think is a handle on the day of Tisha B'Av. I think of all of the uh, the days on the Jewish calendar that we observe, that we celebrate, that, uh, that, we, uh, that we mark. So Tisha B'Av is probably the one which is the biggest challenge. Uh, first and foremost, there's nothing to eat. So there's no food association that we're going to do with the, uh, the day. So that's going to present a, a, a challenge in and of itself. But there's a number of other reasons why the day of Tisha B'Av is something which is so difficult to, uh, to, uh, to connect with. Uh, the events that we commemorate are thousands of years old. But so is Matan Torah, so is Sukkah, so is Yitzhia Smitzrayim. Those are also thousands of, of years old. But the other Yom token that we have, it's a celebration. So we understand what freedom means. We like to connect with freedom. Cheres is something that is an, it's a human drive to be part of. So therefore, we feel connected with that. Matan Torah, hopefully people feel privileged to be able to study Torah and what, how Torah enhances their lives and how it improves their, uh, their, their connection with HaGadosh Baruch Hu. So that also is something which we don't have that much difficulty being able to, uh, to connect with. But Chorba Beis HaMikdash is something which is very difficult because we never experience a Beis HaMikdash. We don't know what having a Beis HaMikdash is like to be able to really feel the depth of what the absence of the Beis HaMikdash therefore means. And if we don't have that frame of reference, it's impossible to be able to go ahead and, and, capture, and capture that. Um, it, it would be virtually impossible to explain to somebody who is orphaned from a child what it means to lose the parent as an adult. They just can't, they don't have that frame of reference. They don't have that experience to be able to, to connect with that. And they can try and put together uh, thoughts in their mind, but it's something which is, which is very difficult. How do we know that it's difficult? Because as we get closer to Tisha B'Av, so you see more and more organizations publicize, we're going to have this video showing and this video showing and this speaker and that speaker. We spend the day as much as you can essentially distracting ourselves from what's going on. An essential part of the observance of the day, certainly the morning of Tisha B'Av, is to focus on the Arvelos and to not do anything which is going to distract yourself from that. And then we go ahead and we try and figure out ways that we can have inspirational stories about Holocaust survivors or inspiring stories about this, this aspect of the Holocaust, something like that. Holocaust, a little bit we could connect with because it's not that far back in our history. So that we connect with more so than Korban Beis Amikdash. But Chazal were very specific. The focus and our attention is supposed to be on Korban Beis Amikdash, and we just struggle to be able to, uh, to, to connect with that. And I think that's a universal struggle. You know, back in my days in camp, we watched Operation Thunderbolt. We watched Raiden and Tebby. That was the uh, Tisha B'Av afternoon activity that we would go ahead and we would do. I don't know what it had to do with Tisha B'Av, but that's, uh, that's how they kept us busy. That's how they kept us contained in one particular uh, location. So how exactly are we going to connect with this if it's something which is, which is so foreign? So I'd like to introduce uh, the approach, the ultimate approach, which I'm going to share with you. I'd like to introduce it with a few questions, a few of what I think are fundamental questions. As I look back uh, at my notes over the years of preparing for Tisha B'Av and preparing the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the keynotes, so this is something which has been bothering me for decades. These questions were bothering me and I struggle with them year in and year out. So the first one is, is that there's no story. Purim, we have a story. 
You have Megillus Esther. You can study the story. There's a beginning to the story. There's an end to the story. There's a middle to the story. There's a story which you can follow. Megillus Rus is a story. Beginning, end, the middle. There's a whole storyline which you can connect with. You can follow the narrative. You can follow the characters. You can get involved in that because there's talking about real people and real experiences. Say for Yonah or something that we can connect with because it's a story. In Eicha, there's no story. There's no story which is being told about this is what happened six months before the before the uh, they, they put a siege around Yerushalayim, and this is what life was like during the siege, and this is what life was experienced at the moment of Korban when they finally came in and they broke things and all things which we touch upon bits and pieces of that within various kinos, but you don't have a full narrative. You don't have a full story. Beginning, middle, end is completely absent, and we know from we know from Pesach we like storytelling. So sometimes if we're opposed to storytelling, we, we use that as a tool in order to be able to connect with things better. And yet when it comes to Tishabov, there's no story. Just little bits and pieces here and there, which the Python or the lesser clear may have included, may not have included. And certainly because Eichat does not tell a story. It's not telling a story. It's talking about the devastation which happened afterwards, but no story. Another thing which bothered me, continues to bother me, is that Chazal are very clear, those who are doing Dafyomi, so it's not that long ago, but Chazal are very clear why the first Besamekdash was destroyed and why the second Besamekdash was destroyed. Which Averas did we commit? Which sins did we commit in both of those cases? So if you, if you would imagine, take it, out, take it out of the context you're familiar with, you would imagine that if we already know what the sins are, why is there no tshuva? The whole day of, of, of Tishavah, we know exactly the whole time, weeks in advance, we're saying, Sinasinam, 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 Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara. Why isn't there Alchet Shechatanu B'Sinasin? Alchet Shechatanu B'Lashon Hara. If we know what the sin is, why do we do Tshuva? The whole point is we're trying to be misakir, we're trying to repair the Aveir which caused the Chorban. That's when we talk about Avaskinam, trying to repair it. Why don't we collectively do any sort of Tshuva whatsoever? It's mysteriously absent. It's just missing because why, why isn't it there? And the last thing is, is that the three weeks which we find ourselves in the middle of now, we often think of the three weeks as a, as a tkufa, as a time period on the calendar by itself. But the three weeks are really part of a much bigger picture. Because after the three weeks, we know that there's the Shiva and the You have seven weeks of consolation which follow afterwards. And then we can understand a little bit that you're going to go from three of Puranos, three of tragedy, you're going to have a little bit of consolation afterwards. But from there, we go into Rosh Hashanah, Sereshmei and Yom Kippur. And nothing is by accident. And if you put all of that together without knowing what it means as of yet, you've got a good 10, 11 and a half weeks of calendar, a big chunk of the calendar, where we're trying to go ahead and put together the sequence of things. And is that sequence of this is random? It just happened to be that Tishabah fell out when it did, and therefore it leads up to a good night, a nice preparation, a little bit to Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. Or is all of this part of Chativa Achas? It's one, it's one theme which is running through the calendar. And in order to be able to get, understand any of it, you have to understand the whole picture. So these are the questions. These are some of the questions which you're going to try and answer uh, today and the, uh, the time that we have today. So in order to get there, so the model which we're going to use is trauma. Trauma takes on various different forms, but in order to understand exactly where we're coming from, so we need to do a little bit of brain structure, we need to do a little bit of neuroscience. I don't know anything about these things, so if I'm wrong, 
Dr. Please go ahead and interact. But, <laughs> but the brain here has essentially three parts, three parts which are going to be significant for us. We have the brain stem, the primitive brain, the reptilian brain, the ancient part of the brain, however you're gonna go ahead and you're gonna, uh, you're going to characterize it, but the part of the brain which is responsible for life and death to make sure that the body, the system continues to be alive. So that's what takes place in the, in the brainstem, we'll say. Then you have the midbrain, you have the limbic brain. Limbic brain is where emotions take place. That's where you feel happiness, that's where you feel sadness. All of the emotions which take place, the emotions, interestingly enough, emotions don't speak language. They don't understand words. They have no way of able to speak language, but that exists in the limbic brain, that's in the middle part. And then at the top of the brain, the top of this is the, frontal neocortex, uh, frontal lobe of the neocortex, that's where higher level thinking takes place. It's this part of the brain over here, essentially where the chillin rests. So it's this part of the brain which differentiates us from animals. So that's where we have higher level, that's where we have higher, higher level thinking. Now, you shouldn't think that this is just something which was neuroscience because the soul also, we think of neshama, we think of the, a, a nefesh, the soul is also divided into multiple parts, actually five parts. The, uh, the Kubalim uh, tell us, and the three parts of the brain, which we just described, correspond to those who are familiar with the writings of the Nesita Shalom, for example, will be familiar with the Rashi Tables Naran. Uh, nefesh Ruach Nishama. Nefesh is the lowest part of the Nishama, that's the part which is it by the brain stem to keep alive, that's where action takes place. Then you have the Ruach, is going to be the spirit, that's emotion with the wind, that takes place in the middle. And then the top part of that is going to be the neshama. That's where the thinking takes place. That's where it is. And then there are higher levels on top of it, two more higher levels on top of that. But the three parts of the brain, which neuroscience identifies and what takes place there, corresponds exactly to what the Mukubalim have been telling us for centuries about the different parts of the soul. But you have those three different things with, with, which are there. Now, the reason you need to know that is because the brain has only two modes. It can only function in two different modes called the parasympathetic mode and the sympathetic mode. Parasympathetic mode, the easiest way to remember, you don't have to remember the word, is that's essentially rest and digest. That's when everything is going well. There's no threat, there's no danger, everything is, is relaxed. So that is where, when you get to adulthood and the neocortex is online, the thinking part of the brain is online, so that it's only online in the event that a person is in that parasympathetic stage of, of rest and digest. That's where growth takes place. That's where learning takes place. It's an important thing from Hanchim to, uh, to know that if a student ever loses that, 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 uh, that mindset of rest and digest, if they ever feel threatened, if they ever feel that there's something which is danger around them, even if it's just somebody's bullying them or they get in trouble or something like that. So the, the thinking part of the brain essentially goes offline and they cannot learn in that state or it's going to be extremely difficult for them to learn in that state because without this part of the brain, so there is no learning. This is the only part of the brain which understands language. If this goes offline, as we'll see, because the brain perceives a threat. So growth doesn't take place. Learning doesn't take place. Those things don't happen at, 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 at that, uh, uh, in that state. Because in his infinite wisdom, went ahead and created an order to make sure that the system remains alive. So Akash Brokhu had to create a smoke alarm system within the brain that's going to be able to, which is constantly scanning the environment, literally like a smoke, a smoke alarm, scanning the environment, looking out for something which is a potential threat, a potential danger. 
It would all have that experience. It could be a loud bang that you weren't expecting, which you jump. And before you could even think about it, you've already jumped. You've already responded to it. Or something moving out of the corner of your eye. And also, you jump before it has a chance to register. Oh, it's just the garden hose that the kids are pulling, and it's really nothing. But before you have a chance to think about it, the brain has already responded. So that part of the brain, which is the smoke alarm, which is, which is attentive to everything, which is scanning everything which is going on, so that's the amygdala. It's like somewhere in the middle of the brain also. So when the amygdala gets triggered, so then you go from the parasympathetic to the sympathetic mode of the brain. The sympathetic is what we know better as fight or flight. Fight or flight is the brain realizes that there's a threat. If there's a threat to the existence of the system, there's a threat to the existence of the, of the body, so then there's only two things which you need to do at that point. Either you're going to fight off the attacker, fight, or you're going to run, flight. So fight or flight, those are only two things. And because at that moment, as soon as the dangers proceed, so in order to save the system, you're gonna even have, you're going to either have to fight or flight. So therefore, that's why blood drains out of the neocortex. That's why the neocortex goes offline because you don't need to think anymore. You don't need to think Pythagorean theorem as you're being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. What you need to think is either I need blood in my legs because I need to run really fast, or I need blood flow in my arm because I need to fight really strong, and it sends the adrenaline in, so it's, it's a pain reliever, so you won't feel pain if you're in the middle of the fight. All of those things take place in an instant. Before you could actually think about it, the brain shifts over from parasympathetic to sympathetic as soon as it detects anything which is a potential threat. Now, it can be annoying at times because the brain can be triggered in something which turns out to not to be a threat, but given the error, the, the, the risks of error, better to be triggered into a sympathetic fight or flight for momentarily than to have a less sensitive uh, uh, scanner, which is going to miss something which actually is a danger, because if you miss something which actually is a danger, then it's game over, <laughs> then, 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 then everything is over. So all of this happens, in instant, it's not something that one thinks about. When one reacts to something which is dangerous, the body just does, and it's not a conscious, it's not a conscious decision which, it, which is made. Now, usually what happens is, ideally what happens is, is that the amygdala gets triggered, the brain goes into fight or flight, and then when the, you can assess the situation and decide it's actually not dangerous, so then you shift yourself back slowly, hopefully not too long, back into the parasympathetic state. I'm sure everybody's had the experience that you have a bad dream. You wake up from a bad dream. So what happens when you wake up from this terrible, frightening dream? You wake up, you're sweating. Your breathing is shallow. Your heart is pumping very fast because the brain doesn't know that it was a dream. The brain perceived the threat via that dream. And therefore, it went into fight or flight mode. As soon as all that happens in the body, that shift happens in the body with the, the, the heart rate and the, uh, the, the breathing and the sweating and all of that. So then you wake up and you say, oh, there's actually no danger. It was just a dream. And then you could slowly, hopefully, you could slowly shift yourself back into parasympathetic mode and you can get yourself to rest and in 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 relax at that time. Sometimes what happens is, is that the danger could be something which is so severe and so threatening that fight or flight are not enough. There's no way to fight off the attacker, something which is too big, as you happen sometimes, uh, never with their children, but there's no way they could fight off the adult who is the threat to them. They can't run away, certainly when it's a caretaker who's being abusive to them. So there's no way that they can go away from the caretaker who's being abusive. So fight or flight are not options, they're not viable options for somebody in that situation. The third option for the brain is freeze. 
it just does nothing, right? We know that there's little, you know, the, those, uh, uh, those uh, roly-poly bugs that when you start poking at them, they roll up like that and they, they try and play dead. There are different animals which play dead. Like as Russell gave different animals the ability to be able to play dead in such a convincing way that the predators actually think that they're dead. They could, they could let off hormones which begin to smell as if they're rotting flesh and therefore the predator doesn't want to eat them anymore. Because Russell does all sorts of wonderful things within the, within the, the, the animal kingdom but humans also have this ability to freeze. It's terrible when it happens because that means it's the most threatening thing which a person could possibly face. But there is such a thing as freeze disassociation. Sometimes victims will describe the abuse which they experience as if they were watching it from the outside, as if there was a camera in the ceiling and they were watching this body being abused, but that was not them. That's the disassociation which happens with freeze that they can't, there's nothing they can do. They can't fight, they can't fight, there's nowhere to go. So they just freeze into place and that's, that's, that's where they are. Somebody who experiences consistent trauma over a long period of time. So what can happen is, is the amygdala can get clicked on and it doesn't turn off. And that person is constantly in a state of fight or flight. And they can't get themselves to settle down. They can't sit, they can't sleep, they can't eat. They can't do any of the normal things which are part of the parasympathetic mode because in order to do those things, the body, the brain has to uh, understand that there's no threat. And if the threat is constant, the threat is always there 24 seven, they're just stuck in that, in that brain and all sorts of symptoms come up and it's something which is dangerous to the body. It's, it's dangerous all around. It's, it's a terrible state to, to, uh, to be in. What happens is, is that when people experience that, so life, right, we've talked about people who had event trauma, that there was a single event, it could be a car accident, whatever the, the event is, when event trauma takes place, for many of them, they say, they will describe, there was life pre-trauma and there's life after trauma. In the normal henship, the normal linear passage of time which takes place, I was three years old, I was four years old, I was five years old, I was six years old, just sort of loping along, that doesn't happen. There's pre-trauma, there is post-trauma, and there is no connection between those two. Those are completely different existences for the person altogether, and everything about them changes. Now, what's important to, uh, to, be, to be mindful of, to be, to be aware of, but actually before I get set, so you should know that these two modes, again, just to connect it, that the parasympathetic mode and the sympathetic mode are essentially what we say, what the secret Mahshava say, they also say that there's only two modes that a person operates in. Ava and Yira. That's it. Everything is either a subcategory of Ahava. Ava is expansion, that's openness, that's where growth takes place, that's where learning is going to be able to take place. And Yira is contraction, where a person feels threatened and therefore they make themselves smaller to become a smaller target. They bring their limbs, their extremities, they bring it closer to the body. When you're walking outside and it's cold, people don't walk outside in the cold like this. When it's cold outside, they go like this and they bring up their shoulders too. So all of this is the means of being able to handle the threat, which is the cold. The body knows that the cold is something which is a potential danger, and therefore the body is going to close in on itself in order to be able to provide protection. Yeah. Right. There, there, there's zero, which is threat, and then there's zero, which is a high, higher level year. But, 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 but this, this part of it. So those two things, they match up also perfectly. Body language experts also tell you, they say, if you, if you want to know this, the most basic thing about body language, what you're looking for is a person open or is a person closed? Person's open is an indication that they're honest. 
and that they have nothing to hide, they have nothing to fear, that what they're sharing is something that doesn't bother them at all. A person who's being dishonest, a person who's being deceptive in some way, so they are going to close up. So that's what one basic thing to look for, is a person open or is a person closed, and that matches perfectly parasympathetic and sympathetic. Parasympathetic is ava, that's openness, and the sympathetic is a threat that's going to be euro, that's when a person perceives themselves in, in danger. Now, what also we need to know, and now we begin to get ourselves a little bit more to, uh, to tish about, is that the amygdala is right near the part of the brain where memory consolidation takes place. So over the course of the day, at the end of the day, if your wife were to say to you, what do you do today? As if we said, oh, nothing. But if you're actually going to tell the story of what you did today, so what you, you would need to do is the brain needs to take the memory that it has of the day, consolidate them, put them into a package to be able to retell them. That's one of the things that memory can do, which is part of the higher level thinking. A person whose amygdala is triggered, that scanner goes off, what happens is, is the ability to, to gather, to consolidate memory, that also goes offline. And that's why trauma victims cannot tell their story. It's not that it's, it's necessarily too scary for them. It's that it's, it's brain-wise, it's impossible for them to tell the story because while the story was taking place, the part of the brain necessary in order to be able to eventually tell their story is offline. And you're just grabbing, it just remembers little bits and at the most, little bits and pieces here and there. They didn't completely disassociate, but there's little bits and pieces here and there, but there's no way that they could go ahead and tell a narrative about the story which happened to them in their trauma because the brain doesn't allow for that. You don't need to tell stories if your life is being threatened, you need to survive. So when survival is the focus of the brain, memory stuff goes out the window. You don't need any of that stuff. That's also one of those things which, which, which goes. And that's why over the course of Megillus Eicha, in the course of the kinos, which we say, very rarely are we actually telling a full story. Because the, the event of Korban Beis Amikdash, the first Beis Amikdash, the second Beis Amikdash, these are traumas which Klaiso as the nation experienced. And all of what we need to understand about the Tishuba, the way to understand how Chazal captured it, is all from this perspective of trauma. And as a result of the trauma which Klaiso experienced, we, it's not that we're not telling the story, we cannot tell the story. We cannot put together, we did not have the brain power at that time that we we're experiencing the event of Korba Beis Amikdash to be able to consolidate all of that into a storyline which we'll be able to tell later. And that's why we don't. You get little bits of pieces here and there. And sometimes what happens is we know that this is a method which is employed by those who wrote many of the kinos is they keep going back to a particular phrase. That phrase may be something which is just an emotion. Oi, oi mehar yalanu. But that, that, that characteristic of going back to a phrase again and again and again, because that's where the brain got locked in at the moment of trauma, that's something which is a consistent trauma outcome. One woman who's a uh, outstanding trauma, trauma expert, a very uh, good uh, presenter, but she said she was working with somebody who was in the, uh, who was in the Twin Towers on the day that, uh, you know, the day that uh, on 9-11. And she was working with a patient who was severely traumatized by that. And every time she would start to get this uh, patient to begin to talk about it, all the patient could say was, I could see the color of their ties. That's just somehow that, that one frame was seared into her brain. And whenever emotion would start to come up, that's all she could say, I could see the color of their ties. 
I could see the color of their ties. And just session after session after session, that's all she could get out. It was the only thing she really remembered from the day that she could verbalize. I could see the color of their ties. And that's indicative of the trauma because you can't put together all of those things because the brain just goes, goes offline at, at, at that time. And we find that in one of the keynotes, the first keynote, which we say, uh, uh, Tisha B'Av morning begins with the word Shabbos. Shabbos in that context means everything stopped. There was life, there was life, there was life, there was life. Screeching halt, everything comes to a stop upon Chorban Besamitash when the Besamitash is destroyed. Life as we know it, as Klal Yisrael, life as we know it in terms of our ability to relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even though the writing was on the wall, but once the event actually took place, we would just, we don't know where to turn. We don't know what to do. There was, there was no such thing as life connecting with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, one of the pillars which we have, Torah, Avodah, Mitzvah, the pillar of Avodah was gone. There is no Beis Amitash. There are no Korbanos. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has gone back up to Shemaim. He's not here for us. We are abandoned. We are by ourselves. We are vulnerable. We are the most vulnerable people in many descriptions of that. You find, you'll, you'll see in, in the keynotes, many descriptions of that sense of vulnerability which every trauma victim experiences because once they've been traumatized and they're now much more sensitive to danger, everything is not perceived as a danger. One of the, again, one of the great things that the brain does at the, at the moment of trauma is besides detecting it, but when, the, when a trauma event actually takes place, so the brain scans all of the senses. All of the senses take a snapshot of that moment. What, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you smell? What did you taste? Anything at all, which could be a predict in the future, another danger, which I wasn't able to protect myself from this first time. So all of that is stored in the memory banks. All of that is stored in the brain. So that next time you come across that smell, next time you come across that taste, next time you, you hear that sound, immediately the brain, again, it's not a conscious thing. The brain immediately goes back into sympathetic mode. It goes into fight or flight, and you don't even know why it's happening because you don't remember what it is necessarily that there was this particular taste or there was this particular smell or there was this particular picture which you saw at the moment that that took place. But the brain doesn't forget. The brain keeps track of that very clearly. And every time you cross over that or you come in contact with that, bam, the brain goes parasympathetic right back into sympathetic. And consciously, you don't know what you say it came out of nowhere. It didn't really come out of nowhere. Consciously, it came out of nowhere because your conscious brain is not connected with that in the sense that they're working on the same system. Somebody told a, a story about a, a, a boy who uh, uh, never, he was, uh, he was abused. And the person, the abuser was wearing film at the time. And this boy for years and years and years couldn't get near a pair of film because the smell of leather just made him so repulsed. And so revolts, he couldn't get anywhere near in a soul for chakras. It wasn't happening. Too much leather. So the rest of us, we don't even realize that there's a leather smell in the room. But he couldn't get himself anywhere near a pair of fillet, anywhere near anything leather. Because at the time of his trauma, there was a smell of leather. And therefore, every time his brain detects leather smell, he goes into sympathetic. He goes into fight or flight. He goes into freeze. And he just, it wasn't possible for him to do it at that time because the trauma was so deep inside of him that you just did something that you can't, uh, you can't really move, uh, move past that. Now, this trauma, which Pagasol experienced as a result of Korban Besamikash, so it wasn't even something, it wasn't an event which that generation experienced. 
we like to in order to save ourselves, our own peace of mind, we like to compartmentalize somebody else's trauma. So that generation experienced Korba Beis Amikdash, the first Beis Amikdash. So that was their trauma. And then those who grew up afterwards, so they're good to go. And those who were around for the second Beis Amikdash, that was their trauma. But it's not a trauma which goes on anymore. But we know now for sure that that's not true. We used to think that there was such a thing as survivors of the Holocaust. They may have they experienced the trauma, and there were characteristics which you, can, you would see in survivors of the Holocaust, characteristics which they would have, which are indicative of the trauma which they suffered. Okay, they suffered through it. They're amazing that they, that they, that they survived, but they survived through it, and there was their trauma. Then we discovered that their children also have certain characteristics, which there's a recognized, in the psychology world, there's a recognized thing as children of Holocaust survivors, and the experience, they never experienced trauma personally, but trauma is passed on generationally. And now as time goes on, they see it even in third generation. Third generation from the Holocaust, they, they may not even have known that grandparent. That grandparent may have passed away by the time that they were born, but these things, the effects of trauma are something which are passed on from generation after generation after generation. And it's something which not just we recognize and we suspect, but studies have been done by psychologists and they, they accept this fact. It is a fact that there's generational trauma which results from the, uh, from the Holocaust. And if it's true of the Holocaust, it's certainly true of Korba Besamekis. We don't realize it because we're so far away and we've grown up with it, but there are effects which Claudia Israel suffers from as a result of that generational, uh, that generational uh, uh, trauma. And also some of the most uh, uh, poignant keynotes are the ones which describe the effect that it has on children. And the reason why it's so it's so it's so heart-wrenching, the effect it has on children, not just because children are vulnerable, but because it makes us realize that this event of Korba Mesamikdash wasn't isolated to that generation. This is something which is going to be passed on generation after generation after generation within the Jewish people. It's an inescapable part of our existence, is that we are all trauma victims. We've all suffered a trauma and we carry the effects of that. How far are you going to go with the epigenetics and all of that? But it's something which can affect the actual physical structure of the body as a result of the trauma which, which has occurred. And that's something which is clearly passed on in the Holocaust now. And undoubtedly, it's something which Hazal understood is going to be passed on from the generation of the Corbin and all generations afterwards. And it continues. Same thing with the Crusades, the same thing with the Inquisition, and same thing with pogroms, the same thing with terrorist attacks which take place in Israel now. All of that that has the same impact of experiencing this life-threatening trauma from which it's very difficult to recover. And, and most likely these are things which the effects of it get passed on generation after, after, after generation. And they become so consumed, this, uh, uh, trauma victims become so uh, a scare, the brain is on such alert of potential threats that they don't even notice things which take place around them. They become, you, you think that they're like oblivious to things which are, which are around them, but that's because everything is essentially considered to be a threat and they don't even notice. The same woman that I mentioned before, she said that she told the story that she had a, a, a client that she was working with making a little bit of progress. And she said, listen, she's very much into uh, into using sensory things in order to recover from, uh, from trauma, but she said, I want you to go out and I want you to look at flowers for the next week. Just look, as you're walking around, as you're driving around, just take note of the flowers which you see as you go about your daily life for the next week. And then the next week, the client came in, she said, so what happened? What happened with the flowers? And she said, 
my whole life, I never knew flowers came in different colors. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that the, the brain is so traumatized that you don't even notice that flowers come in different colors. You don't know that there's a yellow, a red, a blue, a purple. None of that thing ever registered in her brain because she was so busy scanning the environment for danger that she couldn't even pay attention to the simple things such as flowers come in different, uh, different, different colors. And you'll read about in the keynotes, if you pay attention, you'll read about them. We actually express how things don't taste the same after korba besamitash and smells are not the same, how all of our senses became dulled as a result of korba besamitash because it was a trauma event which the Jewish people experienced. And one of the things which is, uh, which is important for, uh, for, for trauma is there's no such thing as healing from trauma while one is still in danger. The only way that healing is going to begin, the only potential for healing to begin is first, you have to get the person into a sense of safety. They have to go into safety, security, before they can go ahead and start to heal. If they're still under that threat, then they can't heal because I can't focus my attention on healing. I can't go through that process of healing the trauma while I'm still under threat of danger. So the only way to get ourselves there is first you have to get yourself to a sense of safety. Tshuva requires a lot of higher level thinking. That's the way tshuva is. Tshuva, in order to be able to do tshuva, we know the components are tshuva. You have to have harata ala avar. You have to regret the past. You have to make a kabbalah ala asid. You have to be able to think about the future, about your commitments to that. And all that is going to affect the now. So you have to be able to conceptualize in your mind past, present, and future. For the trauma victim, all there is is this moment. The threat which exists for me at this moment, that all, that's all that exists at that time. And the ability to go ahead and have harata about the past and make commitments about the future doesn't register. They're not online. The brain isn't online to be able to do such things. The pain is so raw in the midst of the day of Tishabah that although we know exactly what the Avedos were, we know exactly what the transgressions were, which Klai Yisrael committed, it's not possible to do Tshuva. Tshuva cannot take place until Tshuva is part of the part of the recovery process. Tshuva cannot take place until we get ourselves to a place of safety. How do we get ourselves to a place of safety? That's the Shiva Dinachemta. The seven weeks in between Tishabah and Rosh Hashanah, that Shiva Dinachemta, that's Nechama, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving us consolation. Consolation in the sense of what? He's saying, Nachamu Nachamu Amu. He's saying, you're still my nation. You're still my children. You behave terribly. There, there were terrible consequences for what took place, but we still have a relationship with one another, and we'll be able, we'll get through this together. And over the course of seven weeks, somebody heard me talk about this. They said, "Halavai, you could recover from trauma in seven weeks." But over the course of seven weeks, so that's where we go ahead and we go from the feeling of threat, the sympathetic state, the fight or flight, and freeze, which is essentially what Chayyim Israel is in as a result of Corbin. That that mindset of freeze. What we need to do is for seven weeks, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, gently, 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 he brings us towards a sense of safety. Only once we get to a sense of safety, then we can go ahead and we say, Rosh Hashanah, yes, you are our king. We're ready to go ahead and restore the relationship. Rosh Hashanah is all about relationship. It's part of that sense of tshuva. We don't do tshuva in Rosh Hashanah. Because the first thing we need to do is we need to reestablish the relationship, which was broken as a result of Korban Mesamikosh. Whole different schmooze, maybe for another time, about why we use the model of Averus. Because Averus is essentially, just in short, Averus is the, the mourning of the loss of the relationship with the Baruch Hu. 
that attachment, the dvekas, which we're supposed to have, that was severed, as if Akash Baruch was no longer here. Same way, when a person dies, the physical body is here, the neshama goes up. So Akash Baruch said, I'm out of here. He went back up to Shemaim. It's not that he's not here. Part of him is here. But he went back up to Shemaim. He's not accessible. Same, same way a nifter's soul goes up to Shemaim. So there's a loss. There's an availus for that loss. And that's why we accept comfort. And that comfort is now we can restore that relationship. That's Rosh Hashanah. Once we have the safeties and security, then we can go ahead and we can restore the relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're mamlich HaKadosh Baruch Hu once again. So then we're now in a position of safety. We're in a position of security. We've left the sympathetic mode, the fight or flight mode. We go back to the parasympathetic mode of rest and digest. Yom Kippur is really the end of Tishba. Because Yom Kippur is when we can finally, we feel confident enough and safe enough to be able to confess your sin. If you've done something wrong in your life, say yes, let's say you have. But if you've done something wrong in your life, there's a limited number of people that you feel comfortable sharing your shortcomings or your transgressions with. Why is there a small group of people that you're willing to do so? Because you don't feel it's safe. What will they do with that information? What will they think about me? What will they tell other people? We're very guarded in terms of what we do because we don't want to expose ourselves to something which could potentially be a threat, could, uh, could uh, come around and bite us. So therefore, we're very guarded as far as that. The ability to be able to say that first means by definition, we feel comfortable saying that to Baruch He's not going to run away. He's going to judge us. It's funny. But he's not going to judge us negatively. He's going to accept the, the overture of tshuva, of our turning towards him. And it's only because we have the shiva to nechemta that we can then finally get ourselves to that place of safety and security where we can then turn to Akash Baruch and say, we did wrong. We're sorry. We apologize. And we can spend the whole day apologizing for our Aveiras, but it's impossible to do that on Tisha Despite knowing what the Aveira is, the mind the brain isn't in the place to be able to do so. That's not the time to be able to focus our attention on that. And therefore, we don't. We hold it off. And that's why you have this whole sequence all the way beginning with Shabbos and the Tamils. And it ends Yom Kippur. really ends in Torah, but that's also a different truth. But it ends on Yom Kippur. And those are the bookends. We get ourselves wound up into the Avelis. We experience the Avelis. Then we begin to slowly recover. Seven weeks of Nechama, Rosh Hashanah, Sashim Shuva, Yom Kippur. That's how that goes ahead and it, it ends. And that's the, uh, the, what's, uh, what's essential, which is going on. And uh, the Chazal uh, understood that this natural tragedy, which gets passed on generation after generation after generation, we always commemorate these things on Tishabah. So we have kinos related to the Crusades. We have kinos related to different tragedies which have occurred over Jewish history. They may not be directly related to Chorba Beis Amikosh, but it's all part of the same trauma. It's all part of the same national trauma which you've experienced. And every time Yisrael goes through an experience like this collectively, it's another trauma experience which we have, and they all follow the exact same model. What we know about trauma for an individual is the trauma which Yisrael experienced, and we go ahead and we, we, we experience it time and time and time again. And I think this is the essence of what we're trying to, to do over here. We may not understand what the existence of having a Mesamitesh is about. We may not know about what it means for there to be korbanos which are being offered and to not be davening and to all of those things that what life was like before it. That may be too far in the past for us to be able to associate with, but everybody's had experiences, whether they may even be micro traumas, there may be small events in our lives where we were traumatized, but trauma is one of those things which is a universal language. 
or universal experience, universal emotion, which everybody has experienced in one way, shape, form, or another. And therefore, Chazal really want us to be able to focus our attention, to understand the day, to understand the impact of the day from what I think is this, uh, the trauma perspective. And if you go into the day, looking at it from that, and as you read through the, uh, the kinos, you'll see all the things which we talked about are all contained within there, the ability to tell a story, the, ability, the, the repetition of words again and again, just snippets of information here or there. All of that is all indicative of this severe trauma which climbs from the experience. And I think that this uh, accounts for many of the questions which, uh, which, uh, which we began with, the questions which we began with. And I think this is really what, the, what we need to focus our attention on as we, uh, as we move our way into and then experience the, uh, the day of Tishbab itself. Obviously, I can't speak to any any individual's uh, uh, you know um, um, situation. Trauma exists on a spectrum. 
It's not, it's not, it's not, what, it's not, it's not, it's not either on or off. The, the, the sympathetic mode is, is, is not either on. speak to any individual's uh, experience, just for the, uh, you know, with people in the field. Uh, Thank <laughs> you. 